Oh, not so. So this afternoon we finish the cycle. So you know it's coming, the extension upwards to the right and so forth. Um, I don't really have any thoughts to add to the practice or in terms of instruction. I don't know any ways to vary it further. I think I've said it about as clearly as I can. So, but I thought rather than just, just going right in, uh, since you know what to expect, you know the kind of practice we're going to do, or the variations on the theme, uh, before we go in, 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 in anticipation, is there any point that's unclear? Or you're just not getting it, or there's some ambiguity? I might be able to help you out so that when I'm giving the guidance, and I won't give a lot, it'll be much more abbreviated because you're familiar with it by now, you'll be able to do it a bit more readily. So is it as clear as it's going to get, or can I help you before we launch in? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Good. It makes it easier for me. Good. Find a comfortable position. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. Then set your mind at ease. 
by simplifying, by releasing your memories of the past and your anticipations of the future. Let your awareness rest in complete simplicity, in non-conceptuality, in stillness, in the present moment. Let your eyes be at least partially open and your awareness resting in space with no object, not even space itself. Just present, without distraction or grasping. As you withdraw your awareness from all appearances and all objects, then it's easier to be aware of what you already knew, and that is that you are aware. Rest in that simple knowing and sustain it with mindfulness, the awareness of awareness. Whatever thoughts arise, instantly release them without an afterthought and immediately return to the awareness of awareness. Now, as if you are launching a projectile deep into space, in the space directly above you, project your awareness 
without an image, without a target, up into the space, above you as far as your awareness can reach. And let your awareness descend to its own place, knowing itself. Project your awareness out into the space to your right.
back to the center. Project your awareness out into the space to the left. back to the center.
Direct your awareness straight down into space beneath you, the space of the mind. back to the center. Let your eyes close, and with an utter sense of release, of ease, of letting go, let the locus of your awareness descend to your heart. And rest there in the awareness of awareness. Let your eyes once again be at least partially open and release your awareness into space in all directions, but with no object.
just released into an open expanse. Then release all thoughts, all striving, with an utter release of effort, let your awareness rest in its own place, resting in the knowing that was already there, the awareness of awareness.
원하소. In the blink of an eyelash, just so quickly, I make sense of it, perfectly. Set. And that's the sign that I've seen many shirts before. I've seen white before. I know white is the color of a shirt, and so forth. So, and and anywhere sense, it's just click, 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 click. Everything is making sense, making sense, right? All nested within a conceptual framework. And one of the interesting things about the human mind, probably to have other minds as well, and that is even when we see an anomaly. Something that is unfamiliar, unprecedented. The natural tendency is to immediately make it into something familiar. Make it familiar. We don't like unfamiliar. Unfamiliar is threatening. It could be danger. So make it familiar. So when people like Charles Darwin, T. H. Huxley, Alfred Russell Wallace, when they encounter these mediums, that's just creepy. That's just weird. So what do you do with weird that just doesn't fit in? That doesn't fit into the Christian framework either. These these souls hanging out—they should have gone someplace, have heaven, hell, someplace. They shouldn't just be hanging out, telling you that it's okay and telling you their birthday and so forth. Things like that didn't fit. Doesn't fit in materialistic framework at all. That's a total, total no-brainer. And so. What do you do when you encounter something like that? I mean, mediums talking to dead people. Well, you turn it into something familiar, or else you expand. So the familiar is: it's all fraud, it's all lies and deception. Ah, well, well, we've seen lies and deception and delusion before. That's familiar. Good. Okay, we're taking care of mission accomplished. So that means we don't have to look at it and edit anymore, right? Or you expand. You say, "Well, maybe, maybe somehow it's true," and then you, you try to then expand your worldview and say, "Okay, that was anomalous, but okay, I'm going to fit that in somehow." So that was just one historical case, but it happens all the time. We see somebody's behavior that we've never witnessed before. We try to make sense of it in terms of the familiar. So there's that whole mode of knowing, and of course, that whole mode of knowing is overwhelmingly oriented towards the avoidance of hedonic suffering and the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. But now. As we go into this practice, especially that endpoint, the utter simplicity of awareness of awareness, well, we're stepping into an anomaly, stepping into something that we're not familiar with, and that is withdrawing from all appearances, withdrawing from all concepts, all objectification and subjectification of reality, and seeking to rest in a sustained fashion in that more primal mode of knowing. That is operating with or without the conceptual network. It's always there, but releasing the conceptual network and just resting there. And that's all you know. Just you're just knowing, being aware. If we try to look at that from the outside, from the hedonic, the conceptual mode, the ordinary mind, you say, "Well, I'm sorry, you just lost it. What you're doing is completely useless." 
I mean, I mean, I mean, absolutely zero. It's absolutely useless. That is, how is this going to help you get ahead, succeed in the pursuit of the three jewels of the hedonic world? Power, wealth, and prestige. How is this going to help you? I mean, that's how people really succeed. That's our measure of success. How much power, influence, authority did you gain? Power, wealth, how much, how much are you worth? What's your net value? Right? That's a clear criterion of whether you're successful or not. And then how many people know you? This, this is one of the most charming and really odd and almost hilarious things in academia, is people will see how often their papers are cited in other papers. Like, and that's a criterion of success. Academics know about that. It's really quite charming that somebody cited, they might not have read your paper, but they cited your paper. And how often are you cited? That is you. You really count. Look, my papers were cited in this number. You're, and the average number, I read this recently in academia, the average number of readers per academic article is two and a half. <laughs> On average, of course. Which means quite a few got less than two and a half. Because <laughs> a lot, you know, get a thousand, ten thousand, and so forth, the really popular ones. But that means, you know, more got less than two and a half. I'm not quite sure what the half is about. Well, actually, quick glance, or probably just statistics. But you know, so where is this going to get you? How many papers will you get to publish by resting in awareness of awareness? How much wealth, how much fame, and so forth? Kind of like, man, you are a nowhere man. So the Beatles really picked up on a lot of these themes a long time ago. But you are a real nowhere man, going nowhere, being nowhere, achieving nothing. Man, talk about a loser. You're just going, no. And what do you know? Nothing important at all. So you don't really know anything that's worth knowing. And you're not achieving anything. So from the outside perspective, hedonic perspective, this is just really a dead end. You're starting out in a dead end. You're starting a race facing a brick wall. I mean, you're going nowhere. Right? But now from the inside, this mode of awareness, this mode of knowing, that of course is slipping right out into the substrate. And that's where it really kind of spreads its wings, comes to its fullness, is welcome home. You've completely dissolved that coarse mind right into the substrate consciousness. And you didn't just slip into the substrate going into a blank unknowing. No, you're holding, you're holding the light. You're sustaining the light, that sheer luminosity, that pabasajitta, that clearly luminous mind of the substrate consciousness. And you're sustaining now a flow of knowing that is a portal, a portal to what in, in Sanskrit is called the abhijna, abhijna, a higher, abhi often means higher, more manifest, so more sparkling, something ex extraordinary. Abhijna and nya simply knowing or consciousness. That is, you're right at the portal in resting there. You're right in the portal of venturing into extrasensory perception. Because number one, it's not any of the five. It's not any of the five physical senses. And it's certainly not your ordinary mental consciousness or manas cognition, which is very familiar. It's none of those. So it's something extra, extrasensory, extra cognitive, extra outside of the normal. And even though right there, you're just kind of like a 12-cylinder like a Maserati in neutral, humming away. 
but you're ready to go. So if you want to direct this now, direct this to the past, retrieve some memories from past life. Okay, get going. Put it into gear. Check it out. Or if you want to, from that vantage point, develop other types of extrasensory perception. You now, excuse me, you now have the, you have the vehicle. You have the vehicle for doing so. Atisha comments in this Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment that if you develop extrasensory perception with a benevolent motivation, in terms of merit, you might recall this, you can achieve or accrue more merit, more virtue, more power of virtue in one day than you can in a hundred lifetimes without it. One day, hundred lifetimes. Order of magnitude, three million. Yeah? And so, and then he says, and then how do you develop extrasensory perception? And the answer was one, one line, shamatha. Shamatha. You don't need Vipassana, you don't need Bodhicitta, you don't need Vajrayana, you don't need Dzogchen. Shamatha is just the sheer technology of developing that. So from that perspective, then from that perspective of substrate consciousness, from that perspective, if then we turn around 180 degrees and look at the evaluate, the modes of knowing that are totally enmeshed in conceptualization and pretty much reification, then we say, you know a lot of stuff, but it's not worth it's not worth much. Not from this perspective. That ordinary mind, completely bogged down in conceptualization, completely dysfunctional because of rumination and obsessive compulsive delusional disorder. You call that knowing? I'm sorry, from our perspective, that's insanity. And your hedonic pleasures, pursuing wealth, power, prestige? Are you kidding? I mean, this is... This, I'm, just, I'm just resting in the pool, an ambrosial pool of genuine happiness. And you're scurrying after those things? Shadow boxing? Chasing after paper bags full of nothing? Frankly, I just find that pathetic. So your knowing doesn't amount to crap because it's just riddled with delusion, OCDD. And then what you're pursuing is paper bags full of nothing. So I'm sorry, from, our, from this vantage point, what you're doing is a complete waste of time. And then Hedonic says, yeah, more at you. <laughs> so you know, there's a reciprocity there. And if we, went, if we go beyond what we'll be doing in this retreat, into Rikpa, in Rikpa, I mean, now you've absolutely transcended all conceptual frameworks together. You've slipped out of time. You've slipped out of space. You've slipped out of all conventional modes of knowing, either from the coarse mind or the subtle mind, in complete indivisibility with primordial, the absolute space of phenomena, with the energy of primordial consciousness. So again, from the relative perspective, it looks like now you've really lost it. You've gone, you, we can't even imagine where you've gone. <laughs> you've gone beyond all conceptual frameworks, and we are totally lodged within conceptual frameworks. So. I don't know where you are, let us know we're familiar. And so we find that theme cropping up in multiple traditions, that from the relative perspective, this perspective of Rikpa, or I will go ahead and say, the, God beyond, the Godhead beyond the Trinity, Meister Eckhart, phrases like the cloud of unknowing, that from the relative mind, you've slipped into a cloud of unknowing that is, just does not compute. It's like having, in, in mathematics, having zero in the denominator. It just doesn't mean anything. Any, in, any integer, any number on the top of an equation with zero on the bottom, it's just like, uh, it's not zero, it's not a positive, it's not negative, it's not finite, it's not infinite, it's just, 
don't know. I don't know what's up with that. You know? So there it is. It's a singularity. It's a singularity, but it just does not compute. But then when we read the writing of the people like Padmasambhava, speaking right out of Rikpa, I mean the words, the teachings just manifesting right out of Rikpa, then we find these statements, and you find it really most explicitly there in the Dzogchen, where the teachings are just coming right from Rikpa. It's like a person in a lucid dream. There's only one person lucid, and the person speaking from lucidity, addressing all the people, all the, everybody else in the, in the dream, and just speaking right out of that, not trying to be skillful or clever or adapt to their delusional ways of knowing. It just says flat out, Dzogchen, everything, you, everything you're experiencing, this is Padmasambhava. Everything you're experiencing, it appears, but it doesn't exist at all. Everything you think you know doesn't exist at all. It just doesn't exist. A bit harsh. <laughs> it appears, yeah. It appears. But everything you think exists doesn't. Well, isn't that exactly what a person would say if you're completely lucid in a dream and you're addressing everybody else in the dream? And they're all taking this all so seriously. You know, hope, fear, hedonic pleasure, and all of that. And you just tell them, look, I'm aware of the appearances you're seeing. I'm seeing them too. But everything you know, everything you think you know, is wrong. Everything you think exists doesn't. You're completely wrong. You might check the next time you have a lucid dream. Just a little experiment. Because it was an experiment I ran in my first, well, not my first, but one of my first lucid dreams. I've mentioned it before, and I know my result, result my, my conclusion was then, and it's not been contradicted since. But next time you have, for those of you who have lucid dreams once in a while, or maybe frequently, whatever, next time you have a lucid dream, see if anybody else in your dream is lucid. You know you are. Is anybody else? Do a poll. Find out. Ask people. And see if anybody else is lucid, or whether the, you're, you're the only awakened one within that whole world. It's kind of interesting. So there we are. Multiple frameworks. Multiple frameworks. OK. Let's, we have some short questions. This is cool. Please give a more detailed explanation of cog cognition, fused with, cognition fused with dullness. This is happening to me in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state and, of course, obstructs clarity as I'm falling asleep. How, do, how may one separate? Cognition from dullness. Well, certainly no instruction is needed on the cognitive fusion of cognition with dullness, because um, we're all familiar with that. It's called falling asleep, non-lucidly, where just kind of these veils of, of dullness come in. Of, of, just, I don't need to describe it. You experience it every day, I presume, uh, where you just, you just lose it. All right. So one kind of surrenders to the dullness, possibly quite happily. But if we go back to the first type of mindfulness, remember there's the prelude, the prelude in settling the mind its natural state, Sharpvajra-tantra. The initial state is distinguishing what from what. Quiz time to see if your memory can go back a week. What's the first step to say you entered the portal, you've, entered, you've gone through the entryway of taking the mind as the path? And what's the first, the first benchmark? That was a word that some, one of you used. What's the first benchmark? Anybody? Okay, Rosario. Yes, it is? Distinguishing between, between stillness and motion. Yes, it's exactly right. Just, and I'm sure you can give the commentary. 
So distinguishing between stillness and motion. Very good. And then the first of the four types of mindfulness. Now we're really get, so now we've, we've entered the door. And now we're going to find these benchmarks within the room of taking the mind as a path. And the first benchmark is called single-pointed mindfulness. And what's its characteristic? Somebody besides Rosario? The fusion of stillness and motion. Not quite. Close, but not quite. I, I know you know. You want to give me a second? I'll give you a second chance. The simultaneous awareness of, or the simultaneous recognition, knowing, ascertainment of stillness and motion. The stillness of what? Of awareness. Stillness of awareness. And the motion of? Of the mind. Of the mind activities, the process, mental images and thoughts and so forth. That's exactly right, yeah. So now if you've, this whole notion of being able to be experiencing dullness but not fused with it, that's predicated on you're having achieved at least the first out of the four stages of mindfulness, single-pointed mindfulness. And that is, there is a stillness and there's the activities of the mind. Well, we'll generally associate that with the stillness of awareness, with the movements of excitation, agitation, the coming and goings of thoughts and so forth and so on, right? thoughts, images, and so on. But now, if you have that sense, that confidence of holding your own ground in the stillness of your own luminous awareness, which by nature is luminous, you don't have to do anything to it. And holding that ground, not pulled, not pushed away, not anything, just holding the ground in stillness while thoughts and images are coming and going. And then desires come and go. And you're not, you're not pulled off to the referent of the desire. You're just seeing a desire coming up. I'd like this. I wish for that. But it's just an orphan desire arising in the space of the mind. But your attention has not been grabbed riveted, yanked off, and slung like with a slingshot, has not been slung off to the referent of what that desire is for. Right? You're just aware a desire just arose. And likewise, an emotion just arose. But you're not attending to that which you're emoting about. Right? If you are, then you're emotion. Then you're no longer practicing settling the mind into natural state. Right? And so as you become adept at that, one sees there are steps here, and that's the beauty of it. The easiest thing, frankly, in my experience, is to be aware of just the images arising. And they come and go, and, you, and then you're still. That's not that hard. And OK, there's a discursive thought that came and went. Well, that's not that hard. Well, there's a little desire that came up. OK, a bit harder, but OK. Oh, there's an emotion that comes up. And then it's gone. And, but you're staying still, comings and goings of the objective and the subjective impulses. But now, among the subjective impulses, Subjective emergences, they're called semjung, these mental factors, these mental processes. That are there. And semjung means mental emergences, emergences. And just by the way, I'm not seeing Regina. Is she okay? Your mom? She's okay. Okay, good. Uh, so in these mental, these emergences within the space of the mind, or within the yeah, mental domain, then one more emergence in addition to thoughts, images, desires, emotions, is the mental emergence of dullness. And if you've gotten accustomed to being luminously, clearly, and with stillness aware of the emergences of these other mental processes or mental events arising, then it's just one more. 
And it's like, oh, there's dullness. How interesting. That's dullness. Ah. Like shining, you know, a really bright light on a cloud rather than just slipping into the cloud. Okay? So I can't use many more words, but it's just as soon as the dullness arises, be very clearly aware that the dullness is arising. That's it. And practice that. Oh, yeah. And that's the way to fall asleep lucidly. Let your body fall asleep. Let your mind fall asleep. And keep your awareness still and clear. So this, uh, uh, Harot, does your question still stand? Would you like me to read it, or is it already taken care of? Go ahead and read it. Okay, sure. Okay, this morning, that was, I think, a morning or two ago. This morning you mentioned that the Buddha, when teaching people, first gave them a direct experience of nirvana. Well, of course, that didn't always happen, uh, but it did on occasion. Yeah, they would come to him fresh. Now, other ones uh, would have, you know, would have maybe a lot of teachings, maybe from other teachers and so forth, and then eventually they would have that breakthrough to stream entry. But on some occasions, that would be their first teaching, and they'd get it immediately. But I don't want to imply that it was homogenous. Meet the Buddha and you get, you know, free nirvana. Not for everybody. So can this be related to the tradition of taking the result as the path where the student is first introduced to pristine awareness, then, introduced, then instructed to train in stabilizing this? Yeah, I can actually give a short answer. It's a good parallel. And the answer is yes. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, there are many cases of this. Naropa, for example, was a great scholar, a great pundit. I believe it was, it must, it was probably uh, Nalanda. Um, but he was a great, uh, he was, you know, just a formidable scholar. But he was pretty much caught up in the, you know, the conceptual mode of knowing, great erudition and all of that. But then he had this strong impulse, you know, great yearning to actually gain the taste, the direct realization. And it was Tilopa, who was not known as a great scholar. He, I can't even remember what he was, but he was some very invisible kind of figure. The story is too, too, I just can't remember what profession, but it was something really ordinary, really totally ordinary. But you had to know that although he's appearing totally ordinary, like, like the people who take care of the grounds here, it would be suddenly like finding one of the people taking care of the grounds is a Mahasiddha. You know, and that per- that's the person, after you've achieved shamatha, that's the person you go to, you know, for direct pointing out instructions of Rickman. You're like, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I just thought I was being nice when I said, Adika, Adika, and the guy, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's exactly right, exactly right. It's a strong parallel. So Tilopa just gave him a mind to mind transmission, and this has been happening in the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition, the Mahamudra, the Dzogchen, and so forth is that the really realized master, when, and like the Buddha, finding when is the time ripe? When is the time ripe? And then something, something often is anomalous. It may be just to be a mind-to-mind transmission or some teaching. It may be doing something very odd, like, like Chalopa slapping Naropa with a sandal. It may be just out of the blue. You know, when you, but when... when the teacher senses the disciple is really loose. Number one, well, well ripened. Well ripened, really good preparation. The soil has been well tilled. And in a particular moment comes along. And the teacher just very intuitively sensing, when are you poised? When are you ready? Are you really loose? Are you clear? Are you relaxed? Are you still? And then when all poised, then the teacher may 
and that may, may be enough to just suddenly make a radical shift of awareness. It probably fades. In most cases, it will fade. But you get a glimpse, you get a taste. And then exactly that. I think a nice analogy is uh, that, what are they called? Hound dogs, or there's another name for them. But these dogs that have all the floppy skin around their nose, and that's to pick up all the molecules. I mean, it, it's, it's very adaptive. But all that, they're really pretty ugly because you've got so much folds of skin around the nose. That's to pick up molecules suspended in the air. And these dogs, they're almost, they seem like they're almost clairvoyant. And so you, what you do, of course, is you, if they're a tracking dog, looking for a lost person, for example, you put a piece of clothing from that person, put, put it up to the nose. And so that's that, when you do that, that's to the dog what pet is. Like, oh, I got it. Okay, pet. That is, this is the scent. And now trace it to its source. And now, and face it, you know, hopefully until they find the, find the, the person. But, what the, but the scent has been given, and then the dog says, okay, now go for it. Take it off the leash. And, you know, and just picking up a molecule here, yep, that's it. Yep. You know, you know, just give me a molecule. Just give me one molecule. That'll be enough. You know? And it's just, it's really some, almost unbelievable what they can do. You know? I, I read of one account where a dog, this is a little bit off tangent, but here we go. It was a little girl that was lost. They gave it the target. They put the dog in the car on a freeway with the dog's not, nose, of course, out, and the dog knew what turnoff to take, what turnoff off the freeway. You know, it, it, it knows how to sound. Or, or, you know, or, or, or. <laughs> and they did find, and they found, they found, they found the missing person. So, but it's like that. I think it's a very cool analogy because you're just tracing it, tracing it, until you come, and then. You know, the dog snuffling the, the snuffling the person. Ha ha ha! I got it. You know, and that's when you achieve competence. That's when you achieve competence. Now you come home. Okay. So yeah, very good. Short answer is yep. Oh yeah. So inducing fainting. Some of us get lightheaded doing exercises, for example, yoga. If we are able to induce fainting safely, coming to physically rest, coming to physically rest, sitting up or lying down. Should we give it a go? Well, you'll be starting a whole new school of Buddhism, <laughs> the inducing fainting school. Uh, I'd say not. If we stay in the fainting spell, what do you, what do you re recommend we try out? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I don't have a clue. No idea. No idea. I just go for the old-fashioned approach. Relaxation, stillness, and vividness. Uh, trying to induce fainting. Well, number one, you do it every time you fall asleep. So you might try doing that. You know, fall asleep and see if you can fall asleep lucidly. That would be good. But otherwise, I would be a little bit cautious there. Because fainting is usually, you know, because you're not getting enough blood flow to the brain, I believe. And to make a habit of that, not so sure. Might not be a good idea. Yeah. So I'd keep it natural. I'd keep it natural. Or you, many of you have seen something. Oh, I don't know how many people have recommended that I see it. But that neuroscientist from Harvard who had a stroke, and a whole what was it? Left side of the brain, I think it was shut down. Yeah, remember that one? You've all seen it. She's a very good performer. But 
just as I wouldn't suggest inducing fainting, I wouldn't induce having a stroke either. Because actually she was completely disabled while she was having this what, what she thought was kind of a mystical experience. She couldn't even answer the phone, and she was disabled. And so this is not a path. It was a very exotic, interesting, anomalous experience. But I'm, for myself, I'm not going to get excited about it. I mean, it was just so. Left side of the brain shut down. Right side of the brain was active. She was still aware. She had kind of something of an expansive experience. But bear in mind, she was disabled. She couldn't, she couldn't do anything. I think she could barely crawl to the phone even. So do I think that was a mystical experience? No, I think it was an anomalous experience, but not a mystical experience. And it's certainly not a path. So I don't really think inducing fainting is a path any more than having a stroke and see if you can kind of just repeatedly have a stroke uh, would be a path. I don't think so. Oh yeah, so we do have quite a bit of time. As a as, as recall, what I'd like to do is again, because time is short, uh, we're approaching the final two weeks, is if we can at least start off with real practice-related questions. And my sense was over here at about 4 o'clock in my field of vision, like where James is, uh, there was some, some, maybe a couple of hands, I believe, up yesterday. And I suspect they're pr uh, practice-related. So we'll start there. So please with James. Thank you. I think, I think this question has been answered pr probably um, many times in your, in your lectures, but um, awareness of awareness is a practice that I've just really started to do in earnest in uh, the past few days. So um, I just wanted to make sure that I'm getting it right, mm -hmm. of course. So mm -hmm. um, the, um, the probing was something that I never really understood until, of, you know, of course, I started trying it. And um, the, um, the gist of it, the thrust of it, just to make sure that I um, get this correctly, is um, to clear out all of the things that you think might be awareness. Yeah, or might be you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Might be you, like the person who's probing, or the, you know, the image of a probe, or something like that. Yeah, the prober, the one who's aware, the one who's observing, the one mm -hmm. who's doing it, the meditator. Mm -hmm. So that you can actually begin the practice correctly. That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. So you're not blocked. It's almost like trying to get water to flow through a pipe, but then finding it's blocked here. Mm -hmm because you're still identifying with a certain image, and then you're resting in that identification with a certain image, which means you're not resting in awareness of awareness, you're resting in identification yeah. with an image, which is yeah. not the practice. Yeah. So it's to, to almost like put Drano, you know, something to unclog pipes, Drano through the, through, the, through the pipe from your coarse mind down to the substrate, consciousness, so that blockages, you know, get just eroded away by, by the sharp light, by that penetrating, it has a very penetrating quality to it. That's the terminology. You're really piercing, you're penetrating. That's why I call it a cognoscopy, trying to get into the entrails of the mind to break through blockages until it's just free, free fall. So there's just really no appearances at all. And then you're really, then it's kind of like just, oh, you just fall into the laundry chute. Whee! And there's nothing between you and the ground. And um, I noticed when I kind of combined the probing with uh, the image of the flicking, you know, the... Um, oh, yeah, the flicking, uh, the flicking of the arrows away. Yeah, the flicking of the foil, uh, you know, the arrows yeah. by the foil. Um, that, that worked especially well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, uh, of course, flicking and flicking and flicking, and then, of course, I had to flick away the flick, flick away the flicker, <laughs> because there was an image of a swordsman. Yeah. 
and that's where the metaphor winds up being cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that um, I got past a certain point, and, and it actually felt really good. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it you know it felt like I had let go of a couple mm -hmm. delusions, I guess. Yeah. And a lot of turbulence came up over the next maybe well, now, yesterday, the day before. Mm -hmm. And so is that that's like a normal thing. Par for the course. Par for the course. It's really, you're, you're tapping right into the sheer luminosity, the vividness, clarity, all those being translations with the same term, sacha in Tibetan. You're, you're tapping right into that, because that's just really, you know, it's, it's called the, the brightly shining mind. I mean, that's the, that's the reference to it in the, in, the, in the Theravada tradition, this babanga, or the, what we call the substrate consciousness. So you're tapping right into that. And when we consider that the qualities of this substrate consciousness are that it's still, that it's clear, and that it's relaxed. That clarity and bliss are closer related. Clarity, that is serenity, peacefulness, like ah, that's related to stillness and relaxation. So if we couple these, the stillness and relaxation, relaxation and stillness, that's more of the soothing quality, the serenity, the peacefulness like that. But the vividness, the clarity, the brightness, the acuity, that's much more directly related to bliss. Yeah. So tapping right into it. Yeah. Oh, and when that happens, then especially so the, so the bliss being strongly associated with clarity, clarity having that piercing quality to it, that's exactly when you're doing the deep dredging of, the, of your mind, whether it's by, by any technique, mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, or this one. And in the settling the mind, when you, when you experience that type of sharpness, kind of a spike of lucidity, especially if it's sustained with stability, that's when you really open up the Pandora's box of your mind, and you're looking right where all the stuff comes out. So all the memories that are the, the most torturous memories, they're just coming right out to meet you. You're looking right where they're going to come from, and lo and behold, here comes Attila, Attila, Attila the Hun's hordes, you know, ready to just rend you asunder. And you're looking right where they're coming from, so no wonder. This is, this is pretty fierce. It can be very difficult then to hold your own ground when you're looking right where all these memories, emotions, and so forth are coming up. But on the other hand, so there it is. You're going to meet them right on the meditation cushion, because that's where you're looking, and that's where they come. In contrast, in, in the mindfulness of breathing and awareness of awareness practices, whatever's coming up, like in my, either one, but more casually, more gently, in mindfulness of breathing, there are the images, bye, breathing out, you know, just breathing out. But whatever it is, Attila the Hun or Marilyn Monroe or whatever it is, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, whatever it is, it's kind of like, and just releasing it. So they can't get in. It's kind of like, it's like a butterfly trying to fly against the wind. Not easy. And you just keep on blowing them away. So whatever it is, they're really not, they don't tend to be so invasive or disruptive while you're on the cushion because the wind's blowing the other way. Right? And likewise, an awareness of awareness, whatever's coming up, well, you're not gently releasing them. You're just flicking them away. Boom. Instantaneous. Like, like more like a fly coming into the, one of those awful electro... Uh, yeah, I've seen that right near our monastery in Switzerland. They this, around this very, very fancy hotel, they had these electronic grids, and the insects in the air would come, and then, you know, and they're, they're dead, dead on contact. Well, so I'm not in favor of that. But... That your, your awareness is the electronic grid, and the thoughts are the flies, and they just touch your awareness. Right. 
big beetle, little beetle, mosquito, fly, bloop, 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 and that's it. You know, there's just there's no conversation. They just they're gone, right? But that means that whatever emotions, memories, and so forth come up, they once again have no staying power because whatever it is, it's gone. But that means they're waiting for you when you get off the cushion. And so whether it's happening in your dreams, whether it's happening just when you're eating your meal or you're walking about, then they say, aha, James's guard is down. Let's go beat the crap out of him. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so they get you one way or another. It will come up. There's no freebie of just kind of doing a detour around all the dredging of the psyche. It'll come up on the cushion, suddenly in the mind especially. It'll come up off the cushion, dreams, and so forth, if you're doing one of the other two, two techniques. Go ahead. And on one last note, um, yeah. I've, I noticed, so um, I still haven't really been able to rest in it yet. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I have noticed that you know, the flicking, so to speak, would get faster and faster and faster, almost like mosquito-like. You know, um, it would get very, very, very fast, and suddenly there would be a stillness. Just, just maybe, maybe for a quarter of a second. Yeah. And is that, I mean, is that what I'm looking for? Don't look for anything. Okay, that's true. Yeah, don't look for anything, and but and let it rise up to meet you. And the way to rise up to meet you is one of my favorite combinations, all-time combos. Like if I'm a, I'm a, a, a chef and a chef, a cook, the head cook in a fast food joint. Because I don't really think of myself as a chef as a really classy restaurant, you know. Although the food I'm serving, I, I think it's good. But, you know, just to play with it. You know, the cook in a fast food joint. This is one of my favorite combos. Balancing earth and sky. That balancing earth, going back to the infirmary. Not being too macho for that. Just keep coming back to the infirmary. Just getting mellow and mellow, softer and softer, without losing clarity. And then roll out of the position. If you're in the Shavasana, don't jerk yourself up. Roll over on the side, and then I don't know if Kim did, showed you this when you're coming out of Shavasana, but you want to make it as smooth, as, as buttery, as non-jerky as possible. And you roll out of it and roll directly from the infirmary into, this, into the sitting position, for example, and then just go right into awareness of awareness. And if you have that utter looseness, as if mentally you're still lying down, but again, you're not groggy. That'll be a way to sustain those moments of real deep stillness. Yeah. Good. Good. Anything on left? Okay, good. Oh, please. Just a little bit more on awareness of awareness. Good. good. I've heard um, you speak before about, particularly when practicing awareness of awareness, trying to be aware of the shortest plank of time. Yeah. Um, can you just remind me what that is in relation to, and obviously being right on the on the front of awareness, um, but I, I think it would just be helpful to remind me. Sure. Yep. <coughs> Again, this is where the kind of a preparation in settling the mind or taking, a, taking the mind as a path can be a really good preparation for this, because it's especially in that practice where you can see through your own experience the gradual emerge, emergence, the gradual honing of temporal vividness and qualitative vividness. Right? The qualitative, you might recall, as you're attending to the space of the mind and its contents, as qualitative vividness is enhanced, you're able to detect, to notice, perhaps for the first time, subtler and subtler murmurings, very quiet movements, little surges, a subtle image that carries on, and so forth, but very subtle events. And now, you're, because the light is brighter, 
you're able to detect them before they, you didn't even notice them. They were just too subtle, you didn't notice. So that's a qualitative vividness. And then you recall the temporal vividness is where you're able to detect, to know that you've seen something that was so brief that a week ago you might never even have noticed it. It was just too short. Just don't notice, too short. Didn't register, right? But now that, that little flickering, ever so, it could be 50 milliseconds, 40, 30 milliseconds, really, really short, one twentieth of a second or even shorter. But a little tiny little flare, little burst, and you still notice it. Just there, right? And so when you can do that, when, you, when you've honed, that's where you have the whetstone of the space of the mind and its contents. So you're sharpening, sharpening, and seeing if you, how, how brief an instant you can detect of an actual event taking place. But of course, the crucial point here is, and this is why we have mindfulness of breathing in the backdrop, balancing earth and wind, is that, as you're, develop, is that you're developing that razor-sharp acuity of awareness that you're able to detect such brief, tiny little bursts of mental events taking place that you're mellow like a melted marshmallow. Just, just easy, loose. So you're not wired, you're not a, a cat on a hot tin roof, like, like that. Just the opposite. And out of that looseness, you're seeing these things. And now you really taste what it's like of the simultaneous stillness and motion. Because that was just the tiniest bit of flicker of emotion, but you're just totally still. And you're still because you're so relaxed, so loose. If you've had preparation in that, so you actually did have a target, extremely brief flickering of some thought and image and so forth. If you've gotten accustomed to that and you know it for yourself, boy, that was, that was really brief, you know, because yeah, there was actually a target, a sign to attend to. Then when you slip over to the awareness of awareness, it's now the same thing, but there's no target. And that is you've, you've narrowed the bandwidth of what the present moment is experienced as. When you're working still out of a coarse psyche, maybe the present moment is a quarter of a second. That's what you sense. I mean, something has to last for a quarter of a second for you even, even to notice it. 250 milliseconds. Otherwise, what? You know, didn't even pick it up. So now your present is 250 milliseconds. Okay? And then another 250 milliseconds, and so forth and so on. Maybe sometimes it's longer. When the mind gets really dull, you know, it be longer. Uh, but then, out of that relaxation, that looseness, then it starts to narrow. It just gets tighter. Yeah, it is. It is tighter and tighter coming out of a basis of looseness. That is, you're not getting more strung out. You're not clenching tighter. It just becomes a narrow and narrow bandwidth of how long the experienced present moment is. Right? But there's no target. That's why it's helpful to have a target in settling the mind. And so there you are, just, just really sharp. It's kind of like just... And, and one of the experiences of it, one aspect of it is this sense of just freshness, 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 unprecedented. No moment is like the preceding moment. And it's just an ongoing flow of just these sparks, these bursts of just sheer freshness. So a friend of mine who's very experienced in this kind of practice was in a laboratory where he was just resting in that real immediacy of the present moment. But now, not shamatha, but more in the context of open presence, but now way beyond any primitive marmot stuff that I like to ridicule. Now, this man is not a 
this man is a, a, an experienced meditator. A lot of, he's had a lot of teachings in Dzogchen and so forth. So when he's practicing, he's authentic. And so there he was. He was just resting in this. A well-informed, a wise, open presence, but hovering in that immediate immediacy of the present moment. And while doing so, he was in a laboratory being studied, they, the, the experimenters, the scientists, then let loose a sound which was pretty much like a gunshot from, let's say, a pistol shot at maybe six or eight feet. I mean, it's a real shocker, much more than my little pet a little while ago. I mean, this is a gunshot. And there it is. And this person who is meditating, just resting in that open presence, something happened that the experimenters had never seen before, ever. And that is, if you have, if you're anybody else who had ever been in that lab, and you're sitting there, resting, and then suddenly, or even in anticipation, you may even know, they'll say, okay, uh, there's a screen in front of you, and, when, and it's going to go 10, 9, down, 10, 9, 8 down to 0, and when it's 0, there's going to be a gunshot. So you, you may actually have preparation. You know exactly when it's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether it's utterly unexpected or whether it's right when it gets down to 0. Everybody else who'd been in the lab, when the gunshot went off, they show absolutely classic response, and it's involuntary. It's a startle response. And it's way prior to any voluntary control of facial muscles, the muscles around the eyes, the eyes themselves, the blink, and all of that. Well, this person didn't show it, or hardly showed it. Hardly, and they'd never seen it before. So after they shot off their gun, was a recording, then they asked this person, um, that was odd. You didn't show a startle. What's your sense of it? Why didn't you? Because you, 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 didn't, you weren't shocked. You, you didn't startle. That was a gunshot, for heaven's sakes, a loud one. And his response was this. He said, look, if your mind is wandering, if you're even a little bit caught up in rumination, you're, if you're deviating off the present moment, either way, kind of like a, little, like a fly in a bottle, you bump off to this, this side of the bottle and that kind of the bottle, but you're kind of meandering around, more or less hovering around, let's say, 250 milliseconds, the bottle being 250 milliseconds wide, right? And you're the fly buzzing around in that bottle. Oh, yeah, I'm being present, I'm being present. And then suddenly there's something that's really in the present, a gunshot, and <coughs> there's a startle, because it brought you back to the immediacy of the present moment. Not a fuzzy 250 milliseconds or a half second. No, really sharp. Well, he said, I was already there. I was already there in a very, very narrow, narrow bandwidth of the present. Where I was, that's where the gunshot happened, where I already was. And so there was no place to move. Therefore, it didn't startle me to bring me to where I already was. If I'd been off by 200 milliseconds, it would have startled me and jerked me right back into the immediacy of the present moment, right where the gunshot sound was. But I was already there. So there was no startle, because there was no place to go. I was, I was already where it would have jerked me into, which would, would have required the startle response. Okay, Something like that. But the only way you can do this, and not just get totally wired and hypersensitive and stressed out, being really relaxed, you won't get there. You will, you'll never get there by 
I'm, a, I'm an Australian. I'm an Aussie. I'm a man. I can do this. Just tell me how to do it. I'll work out in the gym first. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. This is uh, another approach. Very yin. Very yin approach. Good. What's, how about on the right side? Okay, Lakshmi it is. Um, it's concerning awareness of awareness and maybe a bit more. Uh, this morning when I was practicing awareness of awareness, um, I've been trying to not get carried away by the thoughts. So the way I've found, experimented, mm -hmm. is to exactly just keep the awareness fresh. Yeah. Back to back, keep it fresh, keep it fresh. Yeah. Because it only lasts a moment and then, and then keep it fresh again. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I did this for a while, and then this afternoon when I started doing mindfulness of breathing, after being totally relaxed, doing the infirmary, I just had this really big aversion. Aversion. To, aversion. Aversion, aversion to? To uh, clarity. To aversion to clarity. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it must not be clarity. It must be to just keeping the attention aroused. Yeah. Too much effort. Too much effort. It's strenuous. This is why, you know, for air traffic controllers, I hope they're paid well, because that just sounds to me like a very stressful job. Number one, really boring. I mean, the airplanes hardly crash or anything. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's interesting, at least, you know. Of course, dark humor. But it's boring. I mean, it must be the same airplanes on the same schedule pretty much every day. And I can't imagine it's very interesting. You're just seeing these spots on a, a presumably a radar screen and just want to make sure the spots don't intersect. You know. But it's the same job and probably this, to a large extent the same pilots and the same, the same. But at the same time, if you get dull, it's a massive tragedy and no joking about that at all. Right? So that must be awfully stressful because you have to be sharp. You have to be always there watching, watching, watching. Or like, likewise for jet fighter pilots and so forth. So. They have a lot of clarity, but it's strenuous, it's tiring, and not appealing. I, imagine, I, I don't know if anybody really goes to the job as an air traffic controller saying, oh boy, I can hardly get to work, hardly wait to get to work, and watch those little white dots on the screen. Oh, that's just so cool. You know? <laughs> maybe, maybe, but I kind of doubt it. You know? And so it's got to come out of a deep sense of relaxation. That's it. And then when you have that, see, you're tapping into a pool, first of relaxation, like, Ah, that's comfortable. And then the mind, qu the mind quiets down one way or another. I mean, the mindfulness of breathing is a very gentle entry into, into the shallow end of the pool there. It's first relaxed. And then gradually, as you're moving from stage one to stage two, phase two, you know, rise and fall of the abdomen, it, it gets a bit more peaceful. It's not only soothing, but it's like, ah, oh, this is peaceful. It's quiet. It's peace and quiet, right? And that's nice. And so it's kind of a, kind of a gentle drum roll towards sukha, of really a sense of well-being. And then out of that sense of real relaxation, of comfort, and then, ah, this is peaceful, this is nice, I could hang out here for hours. Because it's okay, it's not exciting like hedonic pleasure, but this actually s remains. There's not many things of hedonic pleasure that I would enjoy hour after hour after hour of it being exactly the same thing. You know, the same food, the same music, the same fragrance, the same tactile sensation. Okay. You, you, you want to touch it, Miles? 
I mean, okay, okay. Shall, shall I touch my butt? Okay. Yeah, okay, I, I got that one figured out. Okay, you can stop now. You know, it just whatever you do, if it's sustained, it just really does tend to lose its zest pretty quickly. Whereas, and that's the nature of hedonic. You know, it just, the same stimulus just winds up being less and less pleasurable until it's neutral, until it's just kind of irritating. You know? And here it is, this is not, this is not, it's not hedonic. The kind of sense of, of, of comfort, of serenity, doesn't wear out. You can do it 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, it doesn't get stale. And that's just a, a, the faintest precursor of shamatha. It's kind of the thinnest veil of sukha. But it's peaceful, it's peaceful. And then out of that, as the clarity starts to arise, then the, the sharper sukha, and then eventually the pritti, pritti, as in bliss, or joy, something with a sharp edge, arises to it. And then, then, the practice really then carries you through. So this is why it's said, among the six perfections, that on the basis of generosity, a whole spirit of altruism motivating the practice, ethics to give it, you know, clean up the act, clean out negative behavior and so forth, cultivate the positive. But then the third one, that's a real, that's a, it's one of the largest chapters in the book. I think it's maybe the second largest or longest chapter in the book, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. But it's all about kshanti, kshanti, and that is fortitude, forbearance, inner strength, patience. And that's what you've all have been practicing. And that is, as you well now know, not one of you has come to me and said, I've just had one string of blissful days after another. It's just been so nice every single day. It's just been really nice, enjoyable, every single day for the last five and a half weeks. Nobody said that, you know? And a lot of people have spoken a lot about a lot of chop, a lot of stuff coming up. So do you or do you not have the sheer tenacity, forbearance, fortitude, to just keep at it? Keep at it. Sometimes it may beat you up and you're really hurting. Sometimes it may just be boring. Because there you are on cold turkey on hedonic pleasure. And you look at the cushion, as one person said, and say, oh, no, not this again. That <laughs> <laughs> wasn't one person, I'm sure. Just one person was very candid and articulate. You know, but it's kind of like, you know, the cocaine junkie, the cocaine junkie going into the prison cell with no cocaine in it. Say, oh no, not this again. <laughs> you know, where's my high? I mean, this is boring. And that's where you've you've slipped out of the high, the the arousal, the stimulation of something, at least rumination, even if it's a bad movie, at least in the movie and not a blank screen. You know, even one of those really awful movies. Well, at least it's something. And to move beyond that, that takes that fourth, that third, that third perfection, kshanti, or forbearance. And that require, that would, for that to happen, there just needs to be a deeper sense of, is this really worthwhile? Is this really worthwhile? Or is this just kind of like a cool technique or some skill that could be useful someday that I'd really like to have, but gosh, the price seems a bit high. You know, how much boredom do I have to pay for here? And so if we, but that's fortitude. Fortitude, forbearance, tenacity, perseverance, patience, all the above. 
patience to move through the really tough times, patience to move through the times of insomnia, where you're just having a hard time getting to sleep and staying asleep, patience through the unpleasant memories and emotions coming up, and patience through the times that it's just hard and you're just so sick and tired of being beaten up all the time by mindless, stupid rumination. It's like, boy, it doesn't ever give me a break here. And if you don't have patience, you won't make it through. You say, man, there are a whole bunch of things easier to do than this. For short-term gratification, I got a lot of options here. And you go for one of those, because they're easier. Right? But if you have sufficient patience, you, you get through that phase and get to the other side. I've called it the tipping point. I've called it the watershed point. We get to the and then other side. It's not at all to say that now everything's easy. It is to say, though, that now the practice is fueling itself. You don't need a teacher to inspire you. You don't need reading, outside reading, to inspire you. You don't need Dharma friends to inspire you. The practice is inspiring you. You really want to get back to the cushion. You really want to go back and get, go deeper, deeper, knowing full well there'll be still bad days ahead, bad in terms of hedonic disruptions and so forth. But you really want to do it. And that, it's at that point that you move beyond the third to the fourth of the four perfections. And that's enthusiasm. It's called virya. Poorly translated as effort. That's, that doesn't capture it. Poorly translated as energy. That's kind of a catch-all. It covers too much. But the definition of this virya, virya, the fourth perfection, is taking delight in virtue. Whether it's generosity, acts of altruism out in the world, taking loving care of your children, being a wonderful spouse and so forth, but really you know, engaging in virtue, but doing so with delight. It's what you really love to do. And here's one, practicing shamatha with a good motivation, that's virtue. And really, you know, really loving it, doing so with enthusiasm. There's really a joy in it. It may not be blissful, but you really want to do it. And once you're doing it, you feel, ah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. This is what I want to do. I'd rather be doing this than anything else. And then, now your engine, it's like you've, you've just, you were running on coal, just sheer grit. The, the um, Tibetans have a really nice metaphor for this. When, you're, when your practice is powered by kshanti, forbearance, fortitude, and all of that, they say it's like trying to get a donkey to go uphill by beating it on the butt. And as soon as you stop beating it, she just wants to turn around and come down, down the mountain. It doesn't want to go up the mountain. It wants to go down the mountain. Yeah. You know? And that's what it's like to practice with kshanti. I mean, just keep on beating the ass on the butt. And then when you cross over, you get that tipping point. Uh, it's like suddenly you're no longer running on, on you know, coal. You're running on solar. That is, it's another type of energy. It's another type of drive, another type of juice. And it's virya. And it's joyful. It's bright. It's light. And they say when your practice is running, when it's empowered by, when it's running on the engine that's driving it, is virya, enthusiasm. Then they say it's like water flowing down a hill. So the ass being beaten up the hill and the water flowing down the hill, very different ambience. And so there it is. And then just we'll end, because it's now 6 o'clock, we'll end with a one-liner from the Buddha. Pali Canon. Samadhi is born from bliss. Samadhi is born from bliss. Not only the yields bliss, bliss, luminosity, yeah, 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 we already knew that. But no, samadhi is born from bliss. It arises from bliss. Right? So you want to achieve shamatha. 
You won't achieve samadhi by sheer tenacity, by just trying hard and being skillful and applying, you know, being a good technician. You won't, it, it won't be enough. It's still running on coal. It's kind of low, too low grade a fuel. The only way you achieve some deep samadhi, or deep shamatha, for example, is bliss. That's that. Yeah. Good. So let's have some hedonic pleasure. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs>